Welcome to the Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters podcast. I'm your host, W.J. Sheehan. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm W.J. Sheehan, author of the series Bigfoot Terror in the Woods Sightings and Encounters. Thank you for joining us on this, our new podcast. We have some great things planned for this show, and as we move forward, our sights are set on producing a podcast per week or so, so be patient with us as we get rolling here. We've also established a new website, BigfootTerrorInTheWoods.com, on which you can interact with us via the contact link. And in the store, you can purchase any of my books by clicking on the link, which will take you to Amazon where they are available in both paperback and ebook formats. Our podcast is done in three parts, the first being cryptids in the news and in history, in which my co-host Kevin will bring to light cryptid sightings and information both old and new, which we will then open up for discussion. In part two, today I'll be reading an encounter entitled, He Must Have Run Away. And finally, we'll wrap things up with your listener questions, comments, and perhaps sightings. If you've seen something, say something. Leave me your number, and I will personally get back to you. And now, may I introduce to you my co-host and brother, Kevin Sheehan, who is going to blow your mind with an old encounter in his reading of Cryptids in History today. Kevin, how you doing? I'm doing great, Bill. How about you? Fantastic. I'm super psyched to be here today. I know you're locked and loaded with this story. Yeah, we got a a good podcast today. Yeah, no, really exciting, really exciting. And as you know, uh, I've read uh, the encounter that you're going to do numerous times. I have an original copy of the book, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's Wilderness Hunter, uh, my copy is dated 1893. The book is loaded with very cool, detailed etchings in there that are covered with like clear leaf paper to protect them. And as you and I have already spoken about this, the detail that Teddy Roosevelt had in this book is incredible. Uh, so my opinion is, as I know yours is, that this story is not just some fable, and of course we'll leave that up to our listeners as well as to what they think. That's right, that's right. So um, we'll jump right in here. So in our last podcast, I talked about a modern Bigfoot sighting that took place in Provo, Utah in January of 2019. And as you mentioned, uh, this week we're going to go back in time to the 1800s, and the account that uh, is written, right, by, by one of our former presidents, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, as you said, he recorded it in his, one of his many, many books, uh, this one called The Wilderness Hunter. And the account is usually referred to as the Bauman story. And Bauman was the eyewitness 
and retold his account to Teddy, and Teddy included the account in this nonfiction book. And like you said, I mean, it's got stories in there and pictures from uh, about the bison decimation out west in the uh, in the 1800s, as well as you know how to identify different kinds of bear in the wild, how to survive a cougar attack, and things like that. So it's it's pretty interesting and pretty uh, factual. So, you know, if you get it, get your hands on a copy of The Wilderness Hunter, the Bauman account appears in a section called Cowboy Land. So here's the account. I'm just going to read it directly from The Wilderness Hunter. Frontiersmen are not, as a rule, apt to be superstitious. They lead lives too hard and practical and have too little imagination in things spiritual and supernatural. I've heard but few ghost stories while living on the frontier, and those few were of a perfectly commonplace and conventional type. But I once listened to a goblin story, which rather impressed me. A grizzled, weather-beaten old mountain hunter named Bauman, who born and had passed all of his life on the frontier, told the story to me. He must have believed what he said, for he could hardly repress a shudder at certain points of the tale. But he was of German ancestry and in childhood had doubtless been saturated with all kinds of ghost and goblin lore, so that many fearsome superstitions were latent in his mind. Besides, he knew well the stories told by the Indian medicine men in their winter camps of the snow walkers and the specters, the formless evil beings that haunt the forest depths, and dog and waylay the lonely wanderer who after nightfall passes through the regions where they lurk. It may be that when overcome by the horror of the fate that befell his friend, and when oppressed by the awful dread of the unknown, he grew to attribute both at the time and still more in remembrance weird and elfin traits to what was merely some abnormally wicked and cunning wild beast, But whether this was so or not, no man can say. When the event occurred, Bauman was still a young man and was trapping with a partner among the mountains dividing the forks of the salmon from the head of the Wisdom River. Not having had much luck, he and his partner determined to go up into a particularly wild and lonely pass through which ran a small stream said to contain many beavers. The pass had an evil reputation because the year before, a solitary hunter who had wandered into it was slain, seemingly by a wild beast. The half-eaten remains being afterwards found by some mining prospectors who had passed his camp only the night before. The memory of the event, however, weighted very lightly with the two trappers, who were as adventurous and hardy as others of their kind. They took their two lean mountain ponies to the foot of the pass where they left them in an open beaver meadow, the rocky timber-clad ground being from there onward impracticable for horses. They then struck out on foot through the vast gloomy forest and in about four hours reached a little open glade where they concluded to camp as signs of game were plenty. There was still an hour or two of daylight left, and after building a brush lean-to and throwing down and opening their packs, they started upstream. 
The country was very dense and hard to travel through, as there was much down timber, although here and there the somber woodland was broken by small glades of mountain grass. At dusk, they again reached camp. The glade in which it was pitched was not many yards wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs rising round it like a wall. On one side was a little stream, beyond which rose the steep mountain slope covered with the unbroken growth of evergreen forests. They were surprised to find that during their absence, something, apparently a bear, had visited the camp and had rummaged about among their things, scattering the contents of their packs and in sheer wantonness destroying their lean-to. The footprints of the beast were quite plain, but at first they paid no particular heed to them, busying themselves with rebuilding the lean-to, laying out their beds and stores, and lighting the fire. While Bauman was making ready for supper, it being already dark, his companion began to examine the tracks more closely, and soon took a brand from the fire to follow them up, where the intruder had walked along a game trail after leaving the camp. When the brand flickered out, he returned and took another, repeating the inspection of the footprints very closely. Coming back to the fire, he stood by it a minute or two, peering out into the darkness, and suddenly remarked, Bauman, that bear has been walking on two legs. Bauman laughed at this, but his partner insisted that he was right. And upon again examining the tracks with a torch, they certainly did seem to be made by two paws or feet. However, it was too dark to make sure. After discussing whether the footprints could possibly be those of a human being and coming to the conclusion that they could not be, the two men rolled up their blankets and went to sleep under the lean-to. At midnight, Bauman was awakened by some noise and sat up in his blankets. As he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong wild beast odor, and he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. Grasping his rifle, he fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed, for immediately afterwards he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest and the night. After this, the two men slept but little, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look at the few traps that they had set the previous evening and put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together all day and returned to camp towards the evening. On nearing it, they saw, hardly to their astonishment, that the lean-to had again been torn down. The visitor of the preceding day had returned and in wanton malice had tossed about their camp kit and bedding and destroyed the shanty. The ground was marked up by its tracks, and on leaving the camp, it had gone along the soft earth by the brook. The footprints were as plain as if on snow, and after a careful scrutiny of the trail, it certainly did seem as if, whatever the thing was, it had walked off on but two legs. The men, thoroughly uneasy, gathered a great heap of dead logs and kept up a roaring fire throughout the night one or the other sitting guard most of the time. About midnight, the, came the thing came down through the forest opposite, across the brook, and stayed there on the hillside for nearly an hour. 
They could hear the branches crackle as it moved about, and several times it uttered a harsh, grating, long-drawn moan. A peculiarity, a peculiarly sinister sound. Yet it did not venture near the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, after discussing the strange events of the last 36 hours, decided that they would shoulder their packs and leave the valley that afternoon. They were the more ready to do this because in spite of seeing a good deal of game sign, they had caught very little fur. However, it was necessary first to go along the line of their traps and gather them, and this they started out to do. All the morning they kept together, picking up trap after trap, each one empty. On first leaving camp, they had the disagreeable sensation of being followed. In the dense spruce thickets, they occasionally heard a branch snap after they had passed, and now and then there were slight rustling noises among the small pines to one side of them. At noon, they were back within a couple of miles of camp in the high, bright sunlight. Their fears seemed absurd, absurd to the two armed men, accustomed as they were through long years of lonely wandering in the wilderness to face every kind of danger from man, brute, or element. They were, there were still three beaver traps to collect from a little pond in a wide ravine nearby. Bauman volunteered to gather these and bring them in while his companion went ahead to camp and made ready the packs. On reaching the pond, Bauman found three beavers in the traps, one of which had been pulled loose and carried into a beaver house. He took several hours in securing and preparing the beaver, and when he started homewards, he marked with some uneasiness how low the sun was getting, and he hurried toward camp. And under the tall trees, the silence and desolation of the forest weighed on him. His feet made no sound on the pine needles, and the slanting sun rays striking through among the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmered indistinctly. There was nothing to break the gloomy stillness which, when there is no breeze, always broods over these somber primeval forests. At last he came to the edge of the little glade where the camp lay and shouted as he approached it, but got no answer. The campfire had gone out, though the thin blue smoke was still circling upwards. Near it lay the packs wrapped and arranged. At first, Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did so, his eye fell on the body of his friend. Stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce, rushing toward it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken, while there were four great fang marks in the throat. The footprints of the unknown beast creature, printed deep in the soft soil, told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on a spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking in the woods, waiting for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared, came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps and seemingly still on two legs. Evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its forepaws. 
while it buried its teeth into his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambled around it, uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it, and had then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bauman, utterly unnerved, and believing that the creature with which, his, with which he had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast, abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off at speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night until beyond reach of all pursuit. Wow, that is just incredible. Every time I hear that story or read that story, that just reeks of Bigfoot. He's They're they're in the camp, and he says flat out his partner was following it with a, a torch from the fire, went back and got another one. Then he tells Bauman, this thing is on two feet. And the following day, he's down by the creek, and they see it in the soft mud next to the creek, where it looked like large footprints in soft snow. Yeah, it's fantastic. Of course, you know, back in the 1800s, there was, uh, you know, the terminology of Bigfoot didn't exist. So, you know, they talk about this goblin-like beast. Yeah, and I mean, this thing is obviously a monster. You have two men out there in the wilderness who are well-skilled at what they're doing. You just don't go out trapping uh in this uh, uh, unsettled and uncivilized country if you don't have a pretty good bearing on your skill set and uh, your capabilities as a man. Yeah, and it, you know, it looks like, uh, based on some of the description, that it took place out in western Montana, uh, you know, near, near or in the Bitterroot Mountains. And, I mean, even today, that area of the country is pretty darn rural. So yeah. you can imagine how it was back in the 1800s. Oh, just, uh, it's unbelievable. And uh, not to stop this discussion, because I want to continue it, I actually have an account from somebody, which perhaps we'll bring to the broadcast down the road, of a man who had read this story and decided that if the Bigfoot was there during this account, it would still be living there today, as does the bears and the elk and whatever else is around there. And he spent three years, two weeks at a time, and actually had an encounter. But that's a story for another day. All right. Well, that's a good teaser. That's fantastic. So so what are, what are we going to talk about today, Bill? Well, we're going to uh, get into uh, a story called He Must Have Run Away. And uh, this is just one of those accounts that's going to leave you shaking your head as to what is real and what is not. Uh, and let me get into it, and then uh, we'll see what the audience thinks, and I'll see what you think. That sounds great. Henry Jackson had contacted me with an unusual story regarding the disappearance of his mother's dog in western Pennsylvania. Here is that story. I believe that in hindsight, being 2020, excuse me, let me start over again. I believe that hindsight is 2020. So what must have happened on that rainy autumn night 
had actually started many weeks earlier. My parents owned a house in a relatively rural area of western Pennsylvania. They had inherited the house from my father's parents, who had recently passed. Back in the day, it had been a fairly good-sized dairy farm with three large outbuildings and plenty of grass. It was originally on 175 acres, but that had been reduced to about 20 as bits and pieces were sold off over the years. The house itself had nine large rooms and had been built in the style of a southern plantation home. There, had, there hadn't been any dairy farming going on here in many, many years, but it was a beautiful home with a wraparound porch that ran across the front of the house and partway down the two sides. My mother insisted on living alone on the farm after my father had passed away. Initially, I had considered moving there with my wife, but my wife wasn't in favor of the idea. In order to keep the peace, my wife and I stayed in our current home, which was about eight miles away from there. In the spring of 1981, my mother had started to make somewhat regular calls about a prowler lurking around her home. On some occasions, someone was even attempting to turn the doorknob. Prior to my father's passing, no such happenings were ever mentioned there, nor had anything of the sort occurred while I was growing up there. I had run over there at all times of the day and night to check things out for her, but I was never able to find anything unusual. I responded to her calls on at least 20 different occasions over a period of only a few months, and she, realizing that this was becoming a burden to me, had started to call the local police instead. At some point, I spoke to the police about her, and one of the officers suggested that maybe she shouldn't be living alone there anymore. I was in total agreement, but in spite of the events, my mother would have none of it. The calls kept coming, so in late August, I told my mom that I was going to get her a dog. Now, my mom was in her late 70s, she liked animals, but she didn't feel like she could walk it properly or take care of it. So I suggested that we would have a trainer work with a dog so that she could let it out alone. All she would have to do is open the door and let it out and then let it back in again later. After much prodding, she agreed to my proposal. So we bought a beautiful German Shepherd from a local breeder and she named him Freddy. After this, the nature of the calls changed. Instead, saying that she saw or heard something, the call would always report that the dog was going crazy and barking at a window or scratching at the door while trying to get out of the house. And this went on for a couple of months. Even though she had a dog, I was still going over there to calm her down and do a walk around the property. 
I told her to let the dog out if she heard something, and he would scare whatever it was off, but she would have no part of it. She thought that Freddy might get hurt. On one of the nights that I got a call, it was raining quite hard outside, and yet again, she said that something was walking on the porch and Freddy was going ballistic. When I arrived, I walked up to the door in the usual way. I noticed wet, muddy prints going around the porch. They ran up and down the entire length of the porch, but they didn't have enough shape to be identifiable. I went in the house and asked my mother if she or the dog had been outside. She said that she let Freddy out prior to sunset, but that she had watched him go out and do his business and then called him right back into the house. Now, I didn't tell her what I had just seen, but this entire ordeal had just taken a turn for the worse. There really had been something or someone on her deck that night, and knowing that, how could I possibly leave her alone? I told her that she would either have to let Freddy out if she heard something, or she would have to move, saying that we got this dog for her protection and that she had to let him do his job. <clears throat> About a week had gone by, and she hadn't called once, so I stopped by to see how she was doing. She told me she wasn't going to call and bother me anymore. And I told her that she had to call if she felt she was in danger. This entire situation had gone from bad to worse, and I was beside myself. Once again, I insisted that she had to let the dog out the next time anything happened. On my way back home, I stopped by the police headquarters and told them about the muddy prints on the deck. They said that I had to get my mother out of there saying that it could be a bear and it might break in at some point. I agreed, but couldn't help thinking about her saying that something was walking by the window. Bears don't walk on their hind feet. One stormy night in the fall of 1981, the phone rang, and I answered it. My mother had a scare and let Freddie out. She said she heard him make a loud yelp outside and that all barking had stopped abruptly. After which she heard what she thought was a large branch falling on the roof of the house. I drove to her home, went inside and asked where Freddie was. She was crying hysterically and told me that he had disappeared after the yelp. So I went outside and called him over and over, but he never came. I couldn't see anything. I told my mother to come and spend a night with us and that I couldn't leave her alone like this. The next day, we returned to our house with my wife in tow. My wife took my mother inside of the house while I stayed outside. As I walked around towards the backyard, I noticed some large depressions in the soft grass. There were about six of them in a line, and they all held a bit of water from the rain. These were massive footprints of some kind, 
and I put my fingers into one of them, and it was about five inches deep. I could see more shallow prints going out into the pasture, so I followed them out for a bit, but found nothing else. As I walked back towards the house, I thought about what my mother had said about a branch falling on the roof. So I looked up, wondering if I could see whatever it was from the yard. Lying in one of the roof's valleys was Freddy's body, and I knew it immediately. I didn't tell my mom or my wife. When we brought my mother back to our house and in private, I told my wife I would explain everything later. When I had some time alone, I returned to the house with a policeman in tow. I showed him the dog and told them of what had happened during the night. We put a ladder up to the house to get him down, and he was so heavy that I had to drag him to the roof's edge and let him free fall the rest of the way down to the ground. The dog's head having been twisted all the way around. I dug a grave behind the barn and we buried him together, I and the policeman. The policeman took photos of both the dog and the depressions in the ground, and this was a turning point for my mom. She didn't know what I had found, but we convinced her to stay with us and sell the house. I have been wrestling with this mystery ever since. We all like to think that we have everything figured out. But when you stand there looking at a 125-pound dead dog that's been thrown up onto a 35-foot-tall roof, you start to wonder if you know anything at all. Wow, great, great account, Bill. I uh, I hadn't heard that one, and I was jumping ahead in my head thinking, uh, I wonder if that branch up on the roof was uh, Bigfoot hurling, uh, hurling the animal up onto the roof. And sure enough, that sounds like uh, what happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday, Kev, you know, knowing that we were going to be getting together uh, for this podcast. And you know what came to my mind? Have you ever watched the World Strongman's competition? Oh yeah, where they're lifting up logs and pulling, pulling buses and stuff like that. Yeah. Now there's this one part of the competition where the these husky guys, three or four hundred pounders, uh, built like a brick, you know what, are standing under an overhead bar. I think it's like sixteen feet above their head, and they have to heft these beer barrels. Uh, and fling them up in the air, clearing the bar to score the points, you know, however, however many they get over. Yep, yep, I've seen that one. And I said to myself, you look at these guys that are like behemoths trying to outdo each other, throwing barrels over the bar, and here we have a 125-pound shepherd getting flipped up onto a three-story uh, house, landing in the valley— uh, and the guy said that the dog's neck was twisted around. I mean, this is just out of the park crazy. Mm. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, the gentleman that provided the account, did he, 
Did he say anything that that anything else came out of the uh, police? Because you would think, you know, perhaps that the police might be able to tie a couple of accounts together, you know, after they see something like this, that clearly, you know, how could how could this poor uh, animal, you know, get tossed up onto the roof like that without it being uh, something other than a bear? Yeah, well, even a bear. What could a bear do? A bear's going to drag something. Exactly. It's, exactly. it's not going to. It's not going to throw it up on top of a roof. No. And you know, the funny thing was, in all the accounts I've accumulated, I believe there was only one up in Maine, uh, where police came to the scene, and then later a detective came to the scene, and the detective said to them that there were other accounts in the area through the years of such things going on. Uh, I think that was the only time I've ever heard uh, somebody admittedly speak of other events such as what this couple was experiencing. Yeah, and that's what I was getting at. You know, perhaps uh, they mentioned uh, that something else, you know, they had other accounts or other uh, strange reports in the area. Yeah, and I think, you know, it takes a certain individual who's willing to speak honestly and forthrightly, uh, whatever line of work they're in, to individuals about what they know. But most people, I think, they just tend to clam up. You know, see nothing, say nothing, know nothing. You know, the old uh, three monkey statues. Yeah, yeah, and, and in you know, in fairness to the police, it's Probably not their highest priority because fortunately uh, only the shepherd, you know, was was harmed and uh, the gentleman's mother was okay and and moving away. Yeah, and you know, another thing that's odd about this account is, or or should I say, another thing that came to my mind about this was, I'm sure that this man was thinking of his mother at some point that she's losing her marbles. Sure, sure, you know, reasonable. All, yeah, all of this stuff, well, she's 77, the doorknob rattling, seeing something in the window, something walking around. And, of course, he came up with, Mom, you know, why don't you move in with us? Or, you know, let's, let's do something else and get you out of this big old house, you know. But it turns out the mother was right all along. She wasn't losing her marbles. She was having an experience with something that is unknown, uh, unregistered, unaccounted for, and nobody really believed her until the uh, the son found the muddied prints walking around the deck in the rainstorm. Yeah, I mean you're you're exactly right. I don't know who would believe their seventy seven year old mother that, uh, or, or I shouldn't say believe. Who would get to the conclusion? without a lot more evidence that there was actually a Bigfoot sneaking around on the deck and and uh, jiggling the handle on the door and peering in the windows and things like that after, uh, you know, a 77-year-old woman is calling and saying that she's hearing things outside, right? It's hard to, hard to cross that chasm without a lot more evidence. And, of course, we saw a lot more evidence in that account. Yeah, and he, he didn't specify his belief or non-belief in Bigfoot, but he did say that he found these large prints that were five inches deep in the soft grass. I mean, I've walked around 
in my own yard after days of pouring rain. And I don't think I'm putting a print in the grass of an inch deep. And I'm going, you know, I'm uh, 230, <laughs> 2.30 walking around, you know, on a soggy lawn and I can't bury it a fo- uh, an inch. And he's finding prints five inches deep. Now, you'd, you'd clearly lose your shoes if you were leaving uh, five-inch deep <laughs> prints in the, uh, in the yard. Your yeah, shoes would come off when you start to lift up. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. <laughs> well, why don't we uh, tip into some of our listener mail here? All right. We, we got a couple of them uh, this week, Bill. And I encourage everyone out there to, to send in... Send in any uh, observations you have, any questions you have, and of course, reach out if you've had any sightings, and uh, we will uh, we will get them in the podcast. So the first one is from Down Under, from Reggie in Australia. Reggie says, uh, I love your show and your books, WJ. Why do you think we don't see any Bigfoot Down Under? Keep them coming, Reggie. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a loaded gun. Uh, you know, speaking relative to Australia, I can't say. But if you buy into the, uh, what did they call it, the Baltic land bridge going across the Bering Sea? Yep. Uh, a lot of people think that some of these creatures came across that before it was severed. And if you look at the uh, map of the country where the majority of the Bigfoot sightings occur, uh, it definitely seems to be more condensed up in the southern Alaska uh, Pacific Northwest region, almost as if one might think they found a home there and liked what they came across, so they stayed. But of course, now we have sightings all across the country, uh, which could also make sense that things spread out over time, you know. But why there are no Bigfoots in Australia, I have no idea. And I don't know if there is a record of a Bigfoot sighting in Australia. Have you heard anything about that, Kev? I haven't. I haven't. And I've been down to Australia a couple of times. I haven't even heard anyone talk about it uh, down there. So it's an interesting question. We'll have to look into it a little bit more, Reggie. Um all right, and the next one, Bill, is from Tracy. She doesn't specify where she is, but she says, I love all your accounts, but what do you think happened to the body in your account, The Cargo, which I heard you read on YouTube? Wow, yeah, so what happened to the body? That's the big question, right? <laughs> uh, people say that no bodies have been found uh, and I've had a number of people in the accounts that either shot one dead, uh, which I won't get into now, but in this account, uh, the gentleman came to the scene of an early morning car pileup, dense fog over an interstate, and car and truck after truck were careening and crashing into each other creating one of these, you know, 50, 100 car and truck pileups. He said he showed up at the scene, and one of the things he came across was a box truck 
that had been rear-ended by another truck, sending it on its side, breaking open the box with the cargo being strewn out next to it. And in the fog, he thought he saw what was a body of a victim of the crash, but it turns out that it was the body of a Bigfoot laying next to what he believed was a giant aluminum casket which it seemed to have been in before being thrown clear of it. Hmm. And without getting into the whole story, one thing led to another. Uh, Another group of individuals showed up uh, in a van and with hazmat suits and removed the body from the scene, never to be seen again. So you wonder what goes on, you know, who's taking the bodies and where are they being hidden? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, that's definitely a mystery. Um, yeah, it's very strange. Very strange. All right, and our last uh, uh, question is a short one from Rose, and she says, uh, how can such a massive creature be so elusive? Well, my brother, I'm throwing this one back at you. What do, what do you think? Well, I mean, you talk about the uh, the regions of the country, the primary regions of the country, uh, you know, coming down from southern Alaska into uh, beautiful British Columbia and into the Pacific Northwest and like the Bauman account in Montana. I mean, these places are extremely rural and, um, you know, you have all kinds of wildlife there. So I think, you know, it is quite possible uh, that you you know these creatures could be out there, and you're just the the population density even of hikers and hunters and trappers isn't great enough to come across them at a, at a very high frequency, you know. But yet we do have a lot of evidence of sightings over time out there. Again, going back tonight to uh, the cryptid story into uh, the mid 1800s, and certainly uh, last week and last week's podcast. The, uh, the sighting was, uh, you know, a few months ago in January of 2019, again in a rural place in Provo, Utah, looking up into the mountains there, which, you know, I've spent a lot of time out in the northwest, Pacific Northwest and in British Columbia and uh, in uh, places like Utah. It certainly is very rural out there. Not, yep. not many folks around. Yeah, and you know what was interesting also about that Provo, Utah sighting you went through? This creature apparently had no second thought about nearing this town. The view of it up on the hillside there, it obviously could see the buildings and structures uh, where these people were standing. It seemed to be like houses around there, maybe some stores. And this thing was in broad daylight. Uh, standing on this uh, uh, ruddy hillside in full view of whoever may see it or not, apparently unconcerned about being seen or or, or in fear of anything. I mean, I don't think they, they're on the same page we are. No, and, you know, it came in, like in that, in that sighting, it came in over some very harsh terrain or down some very harsh terrain. So, you know, in a lot of these sightings, you hear of them approaching, you know, in a, in a fairly stealth fashion, but also from 
the uh, from the wilderness side of the encounter. You know, even in the Bauman encounter, right, coming down the harsh mountainside uh, uh, to the to the campsite. So it's kind of I think that they they know what they're seeing. They've seen it before. You know, they have a, a surprise and a bit of camouflage on their side as well. And then they have the escape route of, you know, some very, uh, you know, very steep wilderness, very steep and dense wilderness as well. Yeah. Now, you know, another interesting thing about Bauman's account, I wish, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. He said that this creature sat on the hillside for an hour. Right. So they they had this thing in full view. Otherwise, how could he say it was sitting there for an hour unless they could see it the whole hour? Yeah. Uh, the other thing, which comes across in many accounts, twice during the Bauman account, he stated that they had the feeling they were being followed. This is this intuitive sixth sense uh, that is in every human being, I, I believe, but it's it's a question of whether the human allows it to be developed. Uh, they felt they were being followed, and the two of them made the critical error in separating one from the other, which inevitably led to the dem- the demise of his partner. Yeah, and if you, it's interesting too, if you read the account carefully, which I know you have. Um, you you know Bauman talks about when he's walking back alone, how you know you can't even hear his footsteps. You know they're so it's so quiet as he's moving through the forest, but yet whenever they talk about the sense of being followed, they can hear you know the the twigs snapping and wood cracking and things like that, which also gives you the impression of the size and scale of the beast. Yes, and also. Perhaps some of the cracking was deliberate on the part of the Bigfoot. Maybe, we hear yeah. we hear a lot about branches snapping and making a ruckus in the woods, whether it's an intimidation act on the part of the beast uh, or like kind of like a war party brewing where he's just getting gassed up before he leads his attack. Yeah, good point. Good point. Well, you know, we, uh, we had uh, a good story from uh, yesteryear from the 1800s and a great account uh, uh, from uh, Western Pennsylvania and then uh, some good listener mail as well. But I think that probably uh, brings uh, this podcast to a wrap for this week, Bill. Yep. And uh, as we leave your listenership for today... <laughs> May I remind you of just one thing. Always carry more gun than you think you're going to need. Sleep tight.